Welcome to Swift Unscripted. These Swift podcasts give you, the listener, the opportunity to hear the inside story and be part of the conversation about all means all with listeners in the field of inclusive, equity-based education and school-wide transformation. I'm Dan Habib, and I'm a member of SWIFT, and we're here today recording a live podcast with our guest, Susan Shapiro. Susan Shapiro is a faculty member and the graduate program coordinator in the Elementary Education and Childhood Studies Department at Plymouth State University. In addition to designing and coordinating the graduate program, Susan teaches courses such as inclusive supports and accommodations and differentiating instruction, assessment, and environment to both undergraduate and graduate pre-service teacher education students. She also provides technical assistance and training to educators in New Hampshire, Vermont, and throughout the country on issues related to inclusive education and differentiated curriculum design. Last but not least, Susan is a contributor to the Swift Talk blog. Susan, thanks for coming in today. You're welcome. It's nice to be here. So I thought it'd be fun to start just by hearing a little bit about your own teaching experience before we get into some of the work you're doing now at Plymouth and, um, and nationally. So can you tell us just about what, you know, what your background is as a, as a teacher? Sure. Um, I started off, and I think I wanted to be the next Annie Sullivan. I really was the special education teacher who wanted to help other people understand the misunderstood child. Um, and I came to New Hampshire after um, doing my undergraduate work in Ohio, and I took a job as a primary grade self-contained special education teacher. Probably the long title should have scared me off, but... I had a number of about five or six students. I was in a little red schoolhouse um, that was on the, you know, not really attached, but next door to the public elementary school. And I remember one day I was, um, before school started, I was in the classroom and I was putting up a, a math facts train on the wall. And the principal came in, and this was about 1987, and he said, um, he welcomed me to the school. And then in our conversation, he commented that, it would be best if I did not bring my students to the cafeteria. And um, I think in, in hindsight, I learned three things that year. One is, you know, you really, um, well, I, well, let me go back and say that I asked him why, and he said because they don't have proper eating skills. And I, I think I, I learned that you don't need proper eating skills to be um, in a public school cafeteria. In fact, if you have them, if you put your napkin in your lap, it's kind of a social liability. Um, you really can't learn proper eating skills from people who don't have them around you. You need peer models. Um, and so we sort of pushed a few doors down that year. I was tired and I um, felt frustrated in trying to bring my special education class into the general education classroom. I was making a lot of teacher deals, um, buying a lot of chocolate for the first grade teacher. So I became a first and second grade classroom teacher. Um, and notably for me that year in terms of my own professional development was um, the inclusion of a child with cerebral palsy in my class who had never been to a regular school before. Um, about six weeks into the year, her mom came into the classroom crying, um, telling me that her child had learned more in six weeks than she had learned in six years in a segregated special education program. And I thought I was about to have one of those moments like, this is why I became a teacher. And she said, because she's been around the other children. And, you know, it was nothing to do with me. And maybe I have some little hand in that. But really, it, again, sort of taught me something about the importance of setting and um, about where kids are. Um, from that, I went um, and became an inclusion facilitator. And the year was 1990. And I was working in a, a rural New Hampshire public school district 
that had very little money. Um, so I think about this school all the time when people ask me or make the comment during a professional development experience, you have to have money for inclusion. You have to have money for good education, yes, but um, inclusion is a value and a philosophy that is free. And um, this was a principal, and I'll name him because I respect him so much, Bill Lander, and he had a policy in his building that no child would be removed from the classroom without an action plan that said, why are you removing this child? What are you going to do? How are you going to know it's accomplished? And when is he going back? Um, there were no special education classrooms, again, 1990. Um, and special education teachers like myself, I was there as a special ed teacher, but with the title inclusion facilitator, we had um, desks set in a little side conference room, and we had caseloads of teachers, not caseloads of students. Mm -hmm. Technically on the IEP, I'm sure we had caseloads of students, but in terms of our daily work, we would meet with teachers to build their capacity to educate all kids well. And then that work led me to um, get connected with the Institute on Disability at UNH. And um, I think it's about the time we met. Yeah. And actually, it's a great um, kind of transition to what I was going to ask you next, which is we, we've known each other a long time, I think, before we even had kids. And our kids are, are in their late teens and early 20s now. Um, and my son Samuel's a junior at Concord High. Your daughters go to Concord High, High School here in New Hampshire, so they know each other. And I think both in both cases, our kids have really influenced us and the path we've taken. And so we are going to talk about differentiated instruction today. But I thought it'd be interesting to hear about your own experience with your daughters and how that may have informed in some way your perspective on differentiated instruction. I have four daughters, um, and two of them are twins, um, Emma and Ruthie. And I think they're pretty comfortable with me talking about their um, learning because um, they care a lot about the advocacy piece. Yeah. Um, so I remember, um, I think it was Emma and Ruthie that taught me first that People that, that learner variability is real. And I can remember being a mom, getting four kids out the door in the morning. Many of you can relate to that. Um, and trying to figure out where things broke down, why we were always late for school. So I can remember saying to my kids, okay, what do you do in the morning when you wake up, right? And my oldest daughter, who does not have a label of disability of any kind at this time, she said, well, I think to myself, it's Tuesday. I have phys ed today. I need to get my sneakers or I should hurry up because I can smell my mom making breakfast. And as she was talking, Ruthie, one of the twins, just looked at her like she was speaking in another language. And she said, you do? And so we sort of looked at her and said, well, what do you do? And she said, I just picture stuff. I just picture you in your red bathrobe. I just picture like pancakes in the pan. Hmm. I just picture getting in the car. And I think, you know, it may sound like a little detail, but for me, it was the first time I realized that even, in, you know, being fed the same roasted chicken every night, right, even the same everything, that there really is that variability in how people interpret and sort of understand the world. Um, Emma and Ruthie have continued to be probably one of the top three sources of my own professional development um, as they've navigated the school system. And um, simple things like Ruthie talking with teachers and saying, um, I couldn't get any of my work done because it wasn't quiet in the classroom. And the teacher saying, well, it was pretty quiet. And, she, and Ruthie saying, but it wasn't silent. And I can't focus when there's any noise. Or um, Emma being advised not to take an AP course because the content um, moved too fast and furiously. 
And, you know, both girls wondering if maybe that was a little bit of um, prejudice, that maybe because they both have, you know, A pluses in some of the more complex content area courses, but it does take them longer to wrap their heads around or actually not to wrap their heads around, but to complete um, the work. So does that mean that they're not eligible then to understand complex material? Um, I think, you know, one of the things that they they taught me was that we have to make sure that like in golf, and I'm not a golfer, but I understand there's a handicapping system when we're using handicap in the golfing way here, <laughs> um, that, you know, to make the game fair. And I think we worked really hard for Emma and Ruthie to give them, we want them to have challenge in high school, but not to be so stressed that they have to take days off to recover. Um, so they've been wonderful of sources. And then my oldest daughter is in uh, nursing school, teaching me a lot about cultural sensitivity, flipping an iPad with patients to be able to speak in multiple languages. And Harriet is um, my youngest daughter, and she actually watched me write a Swift blog one time and said she wanted to write one of her own, and it went viral. And yeah, yeah. yeah. you can find that on the Swift page. Right. No, I love that blog uh, that she wrote. And you know, I think it's so fascinating to hear about your own family's experience, because I think that almost all of us, if we just think about the kids in our lives, we we see the need for differentiation, and we probably do it in our day-to-day lives without even realizing it sometimes. So I think some of what teachers have to have to probably do more than most of us is take that intuitive kind of sensibility and try to find a way to expand it to a whole classroom of learners, a whole classroom of kids. So I thought maybe before we kind of go too far down the road, which we're going to get to around some strategies and some experience of differentiation, I thought you could just talk about your own way of defining it. I mean, people probably define it in all different ways, but if you were to take a stab at defining differentiated instruction, what would you say? Um, Sometimes I use the analogy of a seamstress um, tailoring dresses for bridesmaids. Um, I work with a lot of um, beginning educators, and sometimes they're in that stage of life. Um, So, you know, if we said to a really talented seamstress, um, here are seven red dresses. These are the dresses for the bridesmaids. See what you can do to differentiate them, to tailor them, right, to make them fit the bridesmaids. Even the best seamstress really couldn't do anything with those dresses if she didn't have a chance to actually meet and measure and um, talk with each of the bridesmaids because they're all different, right? And there's variability of arm length and waist size and height. Um, I think differentiation is really about um, proactively um, tailoring instruction for children, um, matching curriculum and children in a way that it fits, um, not asking children to change to kind of squeeze into the instructional design, but rather making the instructional design just the right size, just the right everything um, for that child to come as he or she is. Mm-hmm. Great. And do you find that people um, people in your field define it all different ways? Do you like when you put the word different instruction out there, do you feel like people perceive it in different ways or is there a shared understanding like in the profession around what different instruction means? Do you feel like? A little bit of both. I think in the essence of it is the matching of children and curriculum and that tailoring, and I don't think there's anything out there that doesn't address that in some central way. At the same time, um, I find that I use Caroline Tomlinson's work fairly exclusively in my teaching and in my professional development work with school districts because I think it's the most clear clearly defined, um, or maybe the well, most articulated work. And that's with all due respect to other authors and researchers. Um, but I think if you looked at differentiation um, across 
the literature, you would see it defined, or you would realize it was being defined slightly differently. Okay. And do you think, I mean, it started like many educational strategies as a quote-unquote special education approach, I think, differentiation. Maybe, maybe, maybe not, but... I don't think it's seen that way anymore. Do you think that? Do you think that that is a shared understanding? Do you think that people, teachers, see this still as kind of a, you know, just a best practices in education when you when you work with people around the country, different educators, or do they see it as kind of oh well, we have to differentiate our instruction because we have some kids with disabilities in the classroom? I think general education teachers see it as their job description, um, and I think that we sometimes um, we. Uh, under, uh, I want to say under predict, we, we don't expect um, the quality that's out there to be out there. You know, we, we think that we're going to see teachers uh, delivering more of a one-size-fits-all instruction than is actually being delivered. And even some of the teachers that I've met who say, oh, I don't really know how to differentiate instruction are actually differentiating while they're saying that to me. Um, so I think that, yes, it's the job description. And I think... Um, most teachers are fairly open to it. I've done a lot of teacher development and a lot of, as you know, um, technical assistance work around inclusive education. And because it's got a social justice piece and because it's become, um, you know, it started 40 years ago when uh, the law was passed and we've sort of been moving too slowly um, toward making good progress, um, I've been very used to... um, leaving a crowd unhappy or, you know, having um, opposition to the ideas. When I present on differentiation, I never feel that way. Um, I don't feel the resistance in teachers. And I don't say that in any way to say that the resistance should be there around inclusive ed. I just feel like differentiation is a very accepted, um, you know, expectation that we have. And I think that people are um, unsure how to do it sometimes and um, we may need to focus more on supporting teachers mm-hmm. to learn more about how to do that great. and to work you know, collaboratively with each other. Right. That's a great point. And you were, I mean, you in previous conversation we had, you were talking about this really being about access. And you used a butterfly example to kind of illustrate that. Can you tell me, tell, kind of tell us about that example you were... I think the butterfly example was um, I was at a garden center that was doing a butterfly release party about a year ago. And I just watched this little boy... And most of the crowd was adults, and if they had children, they had children on their shoulders. But this little boy wasn't on anybody's shoulders. And he was just running through the crowd, trying to, as he knew the time was about to come when the butterflies were going to be released, he was trying to find, you know, a place that he could stand to see the butterflies. And he was frantic, and he, you know, he was worried and and, um, moving quickly. He finally found a spot, but the way that he moved and the way that he uh, experienced that moment, I watched him and I thought, I wonder how many kids are in classrooms feeling that way about not not being able to access the learning that we offer, that we think we're putting a book in front of them, but they can't reach it, right? And it may be a physical access issue, but it also may be a cognitive access issue um, or maybe an emotional issue and um, a way that I just can't turn off my own anxious soundtrack and able to in order to attend to this book of frog and toad um let alone decode the words or be able to pick it up or turn the pages so i watched him and i thought you know we have to be really mindful that um our first step is just making sure kids can reach the learning and i mean reach in the broadest way then do you think that um teachers who have new classes of kids every year which most teachers do 
Do you feel like they need to significantly change the way they differentiate based on the makeup of a classroom? You know, you're going to have some years where you might have um, a, a really incredible hybrid of learners and some years where it might seem to lean one way or the other. Do you, when you do trainings and you talk to teachers, do you say, here's how you assess the classroom at the beginning of the year and here's how you can, you know, expand your differentiation? Is that the process they go through? Um, I'm a special educator and an elementary educator by training, so I count myself among special educators when I say this, but I think sometimes we've messed things up a little bit historically by categorizing um, learners and then asking teachers to differentiate. Well, really, I don't even want to use the word there to change instruction for those kids. So for the LD students, we have this graphic organizer. For the children with autism, you know, on the spectrum, they'll be going down to Mrs. Johnson's room. And I think we've we've created a habit in educators to start thinking about uh, the tailoring of instruction and assessment and the environment categorically. And I think what we're learning, especially from the Universal Design for Learning um, thinking, is that variability looks really different depending on the context. So, you know, in this moment, I'm able to manage my anxiety and I can access frog and toad. But when I go to the art classroom where the teacher has a whole different feeling in the room, I cannot manage my anxiety in that classroom. And you might think I have an art issue, but it's really just a setting a setting issue. Um, today, I am able to read it because we're reading about animals. But tomorrow, I'm not able to read it because I don't understand historical fiction. And so I, my decoding is um, changed as a result of that. So that what I'm saying in a long-winded way is that the variability of learners is not a, a set condition. It's changing um, and it's always changing. And there'll never be a point when we say, Dan is somebody who needs this support to do this activity. Because you might today, but you might not tomorrow. And you really might not if Karen is sitting next to you need it at all. So um, I think that the um, construct of special education, while it's a wonderful set of services and supports, has some is something that we have to kind of undo and back up from. And one of the things I like best about differentiation as a stance toward teaching and universal design for learning is that the word disability, really the category of disability, is taken out of the conversation. And there aren't those kids and then other kids, mm-hmm. but there are just kids. And the variability of a child with an you know, an A plus average, and I'm saying that in quotation marks, whatever that means, you know, may need the most support of anybody to do a particular activity. I think about, you know, so often it seems um, that it's the emotional domain that we overlook. And so, you know, a child that is very able to write and read and analyze and compare and contrast, maybe given a task of writing an essay on Mother's Day, right? And no one knows this, but her mother's very ill. And so, you know, what's her variability in that situation? I think it's a sensitivity to the fact that, you know, every child may need something slightly different. And then, you know, that can overwhelm people, right? Like, how do I do that with Mm -hmm. 27 kids in my class? Um, But I think Tomlinson says it well when she says, you need to design a classroom where kids walk in, and I'm not quoting her, but I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. Um, Kids walk in and they feel like, I'm welcome here. This place was designed for me. 
she's got my back, right? And I can be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and whatever it takes to make that happen, you know, that's enough. Learning right. can happen in that garden, if you will. Right. And and no, that's really well said. You And you brought up the point just a minute ago about some of the kind of social and emotional issues that can also be factors in learning. Um, and so I think some, a lot of people, when they think about access to, the, to school, they think primarily about the academic piece, but there's also the social piece. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of how much of differentiation you think has to, uh, you know, take into account the social piece and, and how do you do that? I mean, beyond what you just said, are there way, strategies or kind of realities that you try and pass along to educators around using differentiated instruction for the social and emotional access to school? Um, remind me if I don't say something about getting in the car and doing best and worst um, okay. with my kids. Yeah. Um, but um, before I say something about that, I think um, when I look at the newspaper or read a, a journal, um, I always remark that that I'm adding numbers sort of quickly in my head. But I would say, and see if you agree, that 75% of the struggles that we have in schools, that families are facing with their children, that schools are facing with students, um, are related or in some way to the social-emotional domain. And if I look at curriculum guides or you know school handbooks, I would say that maybe less than 15% of what we talk about, write about, teach, has anything to do with the social and emotional domain. Mm-hmm. I notice often like in a young um, primary grade classroom, right, if a child is struggling to use scissors, we rush right over and we help. And if there's you know, more help needed, we call in the o- occupational therapist. And if a child is struggling with reading, we have a whole set of responses, wonderful responses. Um, if a child is struggling to kind of make sense of something, right, it cognitively just can't kind of grasp um, what's being explained, um, we may use some visual representations um, or show some kind of media. We, we do things to help kids make meaning. Um, and yet if a child has a difficult time with self-regulation, right, a child's having a really hard time that it's Danny's turn to be class leader and he wanted to be class leader, and for many kids, they can say to themselves, I will be class leader another day, or I was class leader last Wednesday. Mm-hmm. But maybe for one child, he can't say that and he can't calm that system down. So he can't manage his own emotions in a successful way in that moment. And our response is, why don't you go stand in the hall? You know, we're so um, hesitant to offer an instruction, right? We offer direct instruction in almost every developmental domain, but socially and emotionally, we don't do that. Now, I do remember about the car. So mm-hmm. I had, I do have four kids, and I used to pick them all up in my minivan, <laughs> and I was exhausted, and I was working a long day, and I wanted to sort of be a good mom and say, like, how are you doing? But I didn't have time to hear everything. <laughs> so I saw this in a movie once, and I can't recall the film, but the parents said to their child, their children every day, okay, best and worst, right? What's the best of the day, and what's the worst? And so... I remember um, Emma and Ruthie, they were in about third grade at the time, um, and they had all sorts of um, reading goals on their IEP, all sorts of language goals, self-help goal, I mean, all sorts of goals. We always, you know, we were in it. Um, And I would say best and worst. And every single day, their answer had to do with something on the social realm. So... um, you know, Coley said she would sit with me at snack, but she didn't actually sit with me, but she said she might sit with me. <laughs> I remember I lived in a small town, a sandwich, New Hampshire, and we had one coffee shop that was open like 
on the full moon on Tuesdays every other year, right? <laughs> so when it was open, we went in. And um, I was in there one morning after dropping the kids off at school, and I heard all the other mothers talking about um, how the teacher had taken the children to the ice rink to teach about the basic laws of physics, and they had done things with hockey sticks and pucks. And it just sounded as, about as good as it gets for, you know, experiential, wonderful instruction. And I thought, were my kids in school yesterday? They were. And did I? Did they have that experience? They did. And did I ask them best and worst? I did. But it never came up. Hmm. And I think that it, it just kind of made me pause. I thought, wow, that social piece is so essential that even what that teacher did, which was fantastic instruction, didn't make the, the daily announcements, right? Yeah. Um, it's like Maslow says, right? We look at those physiological needs first, then safety, and then our need is for love and belonging. And it's not until we feel like we have love and belonging that we're thinking about, um, and I'm stealing from Norman Kuntz here, that we're thinking that... Um, that we're thinking about, you know, making achievements, making accomplishments. Um, mm-hmm. So I think a little bit about that. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you think when we as adults now think back on our experience in elementary school, middle school, high school, especially middle school, I think the social and emotional stuff is what we remember, right? I mean, that's yeah. what has been in some ways more formative to us, I think, as human beings and who we are today, even in some ways in the academics. The academics are very important and they, they are building blocks for a lot of what we've done, but without that social and emotional grounding or experiences, sometimes very difficult experiences, you're not who you are you know, right. as a person. So I think it's great that you're focusing on that as well. So we are going to take a break from this conversation with Dan Habib and Susan Shapiro about inclusive education. Please look for part two of their conversation in an upcoming podcast. Remember, if you want to find out more about equity-based inclusive education, just go to swiftschools.org and click on Swift Talk, where you can find more stories written by leaders in the field of school-wide transformation. These leaders include school administrators, teachers, parents, and others who are promoting all means all. SWIFT is a national K-8 center that provides academic and behavioral support to promote the learning and academic achievement of all students, including students with disabilities and those with the most extensive needs. Thank you.